I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind, and it is a gorgeous albeit cold, afternoon here at my house where I'm recording. And I just thought I'd open the window to my brain and let you know what goes on in my brain. (laughs) I have two boys and I have an acre of ground, which means what's running through my head right now is the word Therizinosaurus. If you ever watched Jurassic World 3, it's the big, huge dinosaur at the end that the T-Rex gets impaled on his claws. And my older son, Ben, is pretty obsessed with that one right now. Uh, We have a dinosaur book. And in the book, he's pictured as being black and white striped like a zebra. So it's very striking and it sticks in your head. So that's one thing that's stuck in my head. And the other thing is that my neighbor just helped me prune my fruit trees for the first time. And I'm (laughs) instead of writing them down like a, a smart person would, I'm running through the principles in my head that I figured out from the way he was doing things. Okay, number one, no acute angles on branches. Number two, no crossing branches. Number three, if there's a cluster, chop it off. If there's disease or rot, chop it off or damage, chop it off. And I can't remember number five. But instead of writing these things down, I'm just running through them in my head over and over again. So I should probably write them down. But anyway, you're not here to hear about that stuff. You're here to hear about the Bible. Because remember what the theme of this season is? It is the character and nature of the Bible. What the Bible is like. How it's been treated over the centuries. And what it says. And how it says it. And how do we hear it. And all these kinds of things. So I told you guys in the last episode where we talked about kind of the goals of the podcast that we're just talking about the Bible and building our faith in it. And this is one that is a really fun one for me. And I don't know how to categorize it, but we're basically talking about Bible translation. And for the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about Bible translation and Bible translation stuff and how Bible translation affects us and how we read the Bible. So this is all really fun stuff. Bible translation is kind of almost like a, not a hobby, but an interest of mine. I wanted to do Bible translation. I started studying Greek and Hebrew thinking I would be a Bible translator. So it's kind of got this little wedge of my brain that it'll probably always have it, um, even though I do not do Bible translation. So we're moving out of the ancient past with talking about church history and how the canon of the Bible got formed and all that stuff. We're moving out of the ancient past and we're moving into the middle past, we'll call it that. It's an improvement. We're, we're moving forward through history. But today we're talking about how Bible translation used to be done and how it is done more in modern times. We're going to have a whole episode coming up soon where I talk with a Bible translator about how modern, contemporary Bible translation is done. Uh, So we're not going to talk about that today, but kind of like recent history, kind of. (laughs) Um, What could be in a history book, but isn't our generation? How about that? Okay. 
There's so much that we can talk about, and that's why we're breaking it apart so much. Let's move back a little bit. When we talk about ancient translations, we're often talking about translating the Bible into various major languages. We've already talked about how translation was done into Greek, Latin, Aramaic, and Russian. So we're going to review those a little bit. And then we'll talk about other major translations that have already been done, like English and Spanish. So if you remember, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, just a little bit of Aramaic, but it's in there. And the New Testament is written in Greek. So the first translations that were done of the Bible were Aramaic and Greek, meaning the whole Bible being in Aramaic and the whole Bible being in Greek. Both of those languages were done piecemeal over sometimes centuries. Aramaic was done over centuries, and the final product and various manuscripts in Aramaic are collectively all together called the Peshitta. So if someone says, oh, that's how the Peshitta says it, they're not talking about one single document in Aramaic or one particular Bible written by one guy that's called the Peshitta. That's what I used to think before I started learning about this stuff. I was like, what is the Peshitta? Where is the Peshitta? Because it says the Peshitta, definite article. That means one, right? No, it's a collection of manuscripts. It's collectively called the Peshitta. And it just refers to, in general, the Aramaic Bible and the oldest manuscripts of it. So it's not one single book or one single manuscript that's called the Peshitta, it's a collection. And it's similar for Greek. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, probably completed in chunks over the course of many years. For instance, when it was first translated, they probably just did the first five books of the Bible, and then it got added on to over the years as scholars got to it, basically. And eventually, the New Testament and the Apocrypha were added onto it. And there's lots of legends surrounding the Septuagint. And some Christian traditions consider it to be inspired scripture. Parts of the Eastern Orthodox Church and parts of the Oriental Orthodox Church believe it is inspired scripture in the same way that evangelical Christians consider the Hebrew Old Testament to be inspired So it carries the same amount of weight to them. So that's what it means that you can read the Hebrew Old Testament or the Septuagint, and they would consider both to be kind of the basis for beliefs. Both the Aramaic and Greek translations of the Bible were done over the course of many years, perhaps even hundreds of years, and were done by groups of people in different times and different places. So it wasn't one committee that did everything, It was different groups of scholars or different groups of rabbis that put these collections together to get what we call the Peshitta and the Septuagint. And by the way, it goes the same way for the Septuagint. It's not one single document. It was a collection of manuscripts that are the earliest Greek translations of the Old Testament that we have that we call the Septuagint. So when they talk about the Septuagint, don't think that there's one book under glass somewhere that's called the Septuagint. There are a couple of different manuscripts that are considered to be the basis for the Septuagint, meaning here's how we know the Septuagint probably looked is from these documents that are Greek translations. 
okay? It makes it kind of fuzzier. It makes the lines a little fuzzier of, oh, okay, so if we don't know what the Septuagint is, then what is the Septuagint? You know what I mean? So it's a, it makes it a little bit harder to think about. But guess what? When you start learning the facts about things, it makes the lines a little fuzzier. It makes it so that you have to work a little harder to understand it, and it makes the world a little bit more confusing. That should just um, remind us that the world is a complicated place. <laughs> And to have respect for um, different beliefs because it, the world may not be as clear-cut as we were led to believe. It doesn't have to change our beliefs at all, but it should make us a little bit more gracious, compassionate, and respectful of people with slightly different beliefs than us. And I'm talking within the Christian tradition. All right, so moving on to the Latin Vulgate. This is the version of the Bible most commonly used by the Catholic Church. It has a very different history from the Aramaic and the Greek Septuagint and Peshitta. So with Latin Vulgate, there were older Latin versions before that one, and they were used as resources for making the Latin Vulgate, but it was mostly translated by one guy, Jerome, St. Jerome in the Catholic Church. He worked on it for over 20 years, and it was later added to by other people. He didn't completely finish his translation of the Bible, but he was a scholar that used the original languages and other commentary-type works to help him. So he used chunks out of other Latin translations and just put them into the Latin Vulgate. He didn't need to or maybe want to translate them differently than they had already been translated. Um, and then he did a lot of translation on his own. He knew Hebrew and Greek. Uh, so yeah, he was a pretty scholarly guy. We mentioned the Russian Bible before and about how the Bible was only translated into what is the precursor for written Russian after an alphabet was created for it. So that means the Russian alphabet or it's called Old Church Slavonic now. It's kind of like the pre-Russian alphabet. <laughs> um, that means that alphabet was created to translate a Bible into that language. So that invention was specifically for Christianity. And who did that? Who created that alphabet? Two missionaries that went to what we call the Kievan Rus. <laughs> a story that I won't go into because it was too long. I had to re-remember it because if you don't remember, I was a Russian studies major. I learned all this stuff and I forgot all this stuff. So I went back to research and I was like, should I explain who these people are? Because they're going to be like, are they Russians? And I'm going to say no. And they're going to be like, well, who are they? And I'm like the Kievan Rus. And they're going to be like, who's that? And I'm going to be like, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> there was a tribe. Okay. But I'm not going to go into it. Stop, Rachel. Stop. But basically, the Christianization of Russia happened by choice, okay? And the Russian Bible was translated specifically to support Christianity for Russian speakers. That happened about a thousand years ago, right? In the 900s and 1000s AD is when Russian got a Bible. That means the Russian Orthodox Church has had the Bible in Russian for even longer than English has had it in the Catholic or Protestant churches. So if you want to talk about who has had the Bible the longest in their own language, Russia beats out every single modern European country. 
Good job, Russia. So let's move on to English, since that's what we're speaking and what affects us the most. When we talk about old English Bibles, what do you think of? My mind immediately goes to the King James Bible, right? I think, well, that must have been the first English Bible. It's like the most well-known. It sounds the oldest. It must be the oldest. And I'm really curious. Please give me feedback on this. What's your impression? What's the oldest English Bible that we have? What was the first English translation of the Bible? Was it the King James? Do you know this history? I'm really curious. So please email me. My email is always in the show notes or text me if you have my number. Tell me, what do you know about the King James Bible and the history of English Bibles around that time? I'm not telling you until you tell me. No, I'm going to keep going. So I used to think that it was the oldest translation of the English Bible. It seemed to be relied on as the most original and oldest English Bible, like it was the closest to Hebrew and Greek that we had, and that it was the most accurate because it was the oldest. That was my impression. The truth is that it's nowhere near the oldest Bible in English. The oldest English Bible was done 300 years before the King James Bible. It was called the Wycliffe Bible. You might know that name if you've ever been involved with or know anything about Bible translation, since one of the biggest Bible translation missionary agencies today is Wycliffe Bible Translators. So they're named after this guy, John Wycliffe, who lived in the 1300s and is largely responsible for the first complete English Bible. That means that there were portions of the Bible in English before that, but just like a psalm or two, or a chunk of psalms, or one book, one gospel in English, and not available to everybody. It was maybe passed around a community or a country, but it wasn't widespread and easily accessible. So this guy, John Wycliffe, was the first one to make a complete English Bible. He trained other people to work with him, and together they translated the whole Bible into not modern English, Middle English. They did not do what we would consider today a good job because they didn't translate it directly from Greek and Hebrew. They translated it from the Latin Vulgate. And the 1300s, this is still considered the Dark Ages or the Medieval Ages or whatever you want to call that, the Middle Ages, because academics at this time were not at a really high level. They weren't studying ancient languages. There wasn't a lot of advancement in, say, anatomy and physiology. There wasn't a lot of an advancement in astronomy and all of these different kinds of sciences to purely promote learning. If you're curious, this is a really fun fact that I learned when I was reading about Christian history, is that the fall of Rome in 400 or late 300s AD is what started the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, or the Medieval Period. And it was the collapse of this huge empire that had a lot of learning and a lot of stability politically. And after the fall of Rome, political stability kind of just disappeared. And there were invasions after invasions after invasions 
that made for higher education much harder to come by. And the time and stability needed to do this deep research and investigate wasn't there. So in the 1300s, when John Wycliffe was translating his Bible, not many people knew the original languages of the Bible of biblical Hebrew or classical Hebrew and Koine Greek. People knew Greek, but maybe not Koine Greek. Greek is a living language, so it's always been around. But they weren't studying these things. So when John Wycliffe translated his Bible, they did it from the most easily accessible and earliest translation that they had, which was the Latin Vulgate. So for perspective on Middle English, which is what uh, John Wycliffe translated the Bible into, it's nowhere near modern English. And when you look at it, you think, uh, (laughs) is this English? I'm not so sure. And so for further perspective, William Shakespeare died in 1616. So John Wycliffe was translating his Bible nearly 300 years before William Shakespeare. So if you think Shakespearean English, which is early modern English, is hard, Middle English would have you just really confused. Um, Another person that you know of from the 1300s is Chaucer. Chaucer wrote a lot that I don't even bother to ever read because I don't care to read Middle English. It's just hard. So Middle English, it's nowhere near Shakespearean English, and we can kind of barely read it, but it's hard. So in Wycliffe's time, in the 1300s, the Bible in Western Europe was only in Latin, since the Catholic Church wanted to keep it in Latin and did not authorize translations into other languages. So there were portions, like I mentioned before, but Wycliffe's Bible was the first whole Bible into English. And even though it wasn't from the original languages and wasn't a great translation, it was revolutionary. And he was posthumously declared a heretic. After he died, his body was declared to be a heretic for his beliefs that the Bible should be the basis for Christian belief and not the church. And that's why he wanted it translated into English so that everyone could have access to that basis for belief. So you might be thinking... Okay, so there was the Wycliffe Bible and then the King James, right? No. (laughs) Nope. Between Wycliffe and the King James Bible, there were still at least seven other major translations done. The biggest one we should mention is the Tyndale Bible, which was the first English Bible translated from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, which is kind of the gold standard for Bible translation. It didn't go through that middleman of Latin, and so had better scholarship and was much more accurate. William Tyndale was the guy who started this project, but he didn't even get halfway done before he was executed. We talk about these guys really sticking their necks out to do these translations. So he did the New Testament and the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and a few other books. And William Tyndale started this project around 1520, So now we're in the era of early modern English. If we look at that, if we look at his Bible, we can figure it out and kind of read it. Spelling is different, like uh, the S's are different, but you, you can figure it out. And his whole Bible was completed by other people around 1535. So what's interesting 
is that other European languages started to have translations at this time. Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German from the original languages, though there had been a German Bible from Latin since sometime in the 1400s. And Spanish, well, a, a, a dialect of Spanish, of what we think of as Spanish, had a Bible translation from the 1500s as well. So here's a couple other interesting or important English Bibles from about this time. And by the way, this time, 1535, right smack around the time of the Protestant Reformation. So the Protestant Reformation and European language Bible translation projects go hand in hand. That's part of what the Protestant Reformation was about, was having the Bible in the language of the people so that even the normal dude on the street could understand it. All right, so other famous or important Bibles, the Geneva Bible. This was the first Bible to divide the Bible into verses. Before this, we had chapters, but no verse markings, and they're just added in to make it easier to read, but that was not done until the Geneva Bible in 1560. That means that if you lived in 1559 and you said, hey, you know John 3.16? Somebody would say, John 3 what? And they would know John 3, but you'd have to just look through the chapter to find where we have 16 written next to it. Verse markings in our Bibles is only 570 years old. Before that, no verse markings. Next important Bible is the Bishop's Bible. This was the first time that the English church, within a church structure, within an established proper leadership and, you know, hierarchy and government and stuff, within the church, there was an attempt at an authorized version of the Bible. That means sanctioned by the church, and it was done by the English church, not the Catholic church, in 1568. That's the Bishop's Bible. And that was instead of smaller, kind of almost like rebel Protestant groups. They're not rebels, but kind of breaking away from established church structure. Uh, they had been making Bibles and translating Bibles, but no established church structure had printed or translated an English Bible before that. And that was 1568. And then we have the most famous English Bible, the King James Bible, authorized by, that means sanctioned by, he was the one that kind of commissioned the project, King James of England, and published in 1611. So that's only 500-ish years ago. This was done by a group of 47 scholars. It was done from the original languages, not through Latin. And it was done in what they considered at the time a really good style of language, really elegant, really nice language, translated so, you know, smoothly, and it was just really impressive at the time how it was done, how the language was handled, and everybody really liked it a lot. And it was very influential on the development of the English language. You remember I just mentioned Middle English, that John Wycliffe's Bible was written in Middle English, and the King James Bible was written in what we call Early Modern English. So we speak Modern English. Early Modern English, still different. If you open a King James Bible, you're not going to understand parts right off the top. 
but it's the same general English that we speak. And the King James Bible had a big influence because when you think about it, literature affects a language. Literature helps to develop a language so that it can be fully expressive. Whenever you talk about the history of a language, there's a point at which literature is being produced in that language. That's usually the point at which that language is really taken seriously as kind of a regional language or global language. That's what happened with Russian. Pushkin was the guy that wrote literature that really helped to develop Russian and give terms of speech and expressions and puns and just ways of expressing things that weren't available before. Like it just wasn't available in the language to talk like that, to say things in that way. So the King James Bible was influential in English in the same way that other literature has been for other languages. To develop that language and give it ways of expressing that hadn't been thought of or done before. So the King James Bible is super important for lots of reasons, but even just important for the history of the English language. Okay, and we'll talk about more influences from the King James Bible in actually two other episodes. So we're going to talk about it more and it's really cool stuff. So as you can see, there's really a wide variety of methods for how translations were done. Sometimes it was one guy doing most of it, and then it was finished off or polished off by other people. Uh, Some people had help, um, but they did a chunk of it. And then other translations were done by committee, such as the King James Bible. And sometimes the translations were done from the original biblical languages, like the Latin Vulgate and the King James Bible. But sometimes it was done through Latin or Greek. The Ethiopian translations, do you remember this? The Ethiopian Bible was done through Ethiopic manuscripts, and Wycliffe's Bible went through Latin. And it always took many years to do the work of the translation. In the case of Jerome and the Vulgate, it was at least 20 years. But for the King James Bible, many, many hundreds of years later, it took only seven years. But they had, I think it was three different committees working on the whole Bible, two for the Old Testament and one for the New Testament. So they had groups of people working on these translations, whereas poor Jerome, off on his own, doing this translation. We don't usually talk about technology as having an effect on Christianity and when we talk about the history of Christianity, but technology also very much comes into play with the Bible. By the time of the King James Bible, the European printing press had been invented, and the King James Bible was printed rather than handwritten. So it was really good timing for it to be widely distributed. So it was a really elegant translation, really good expressions for how to express things from the Greek and the Hebrew, but it was also printed, which means it could be printed a lot instead of handwritten by one guy, and it took him like a year, you know? So it was a good time for a Bible to be widely distributed. But here's another fun fact. The King James was published before English spelling. And remember, this is early modern English, so there had been a shift in the English language right before this. And the King James was published before English spelling was really standardized. 
So we think today, of course, there's standard English, right? We know how to spell things. We have dictionaries. Well, they did not at this time. So it's before spelling was really standardized. So there's lots of spelling variation through all of the first King James prints because printers decided how to change things. They got to decide how they would spell things based on sometimes <laughs> even how they wanted it to look on a page. Do you know, remember back in the day when you'd have a newspaper and there'd be one column of text running down the side of a picture and you know, a column would be a standard width. I don't know what it is, maybe two inches. So hold up your fingers and imagine two inches wide and some lines, the letters would be closer together and some lines, the letters would be further apart. That's because the printer was crushing the letters together or giving them space to fill out that whole line. We still have that option of doing that when we go into Microsoft Word and we can say, hey, fill up the page to each margin or let it be, what is it called, aligned on the left or on the right. So printers have to think about these things about how the words will appear on a page. So sometimes King James was changed, the spelling was changed, to fill out a line better. So you know how you see in like tourist towns, in New England especially, ye old coffee shop, and sometimes it'll be spelled Y-E, ye, and then old can be spelled O-L-D or O-L-D-E. Well, these printers for the King James Bible would sometimes add that E onto old, and sometimes they wouldn't, depending on how much space they had. So when you talk about a standard Bible, um, yeah, printing helped a lot with that, but there were still a lot of variations in how a King James Bible looked and how things were spelled simply because of preference or how a printer wanted it to look on a page. Church politics also came into play with all of these translations. Because the English Bible and Bibles into local languages or vernaculars, as they're called, was really controversial and was not supported by the Catholic Church, a lot of these translators were either persecuted or got into lawsuits or were executed and declared heretics for doing these translations. Some of the translations or footnotes, notes in the margin, were changed depending on how they reflected on contemporary issues and biblical familiarity. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And the King James Bible depended on earlier English translations for how to spell names. So if you think about how James is spelled or Oh, let's, let's go to the Old Testament, Isaiah. How about that one? Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hezekiah. The King James Bible didn't say, okay, let's spell this how it should be spelled in English. No, no. They looked at Wycliffe's Bible and the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible and all these other Bibles to see how they were spelled because guess what? You don't want to change things too much because people know how things are spelled already. You cannot disturb somebody's sense of normalcy too much. Otherwise, they reject that new thing. So people were already familiar with Bible character names based on how they were spelled in older versions of the English Bible. And so the King James Bible didn't upset that apple cart too much. They were like, hey, this is how people know that Isaiah is spelled. 
That's a lot of vowels in there, but we're going to stick to it because we know people like that way of spelling it. They know who that is. So even if a word wasn't really spelled in a way that makes sense, they sometimes stuck with it just because people would be familiar with that way. So we're going to move on. How are modern translations done? Well, it depends. A lot of these same principles are taken into consideration for my modern Bible translation. For instance, familiarity. You don't want to change too much or make it less familiar because you don't want to alienate or confuse your readers who have been reading another Bible translation their whole life. And that makes sense, right? There's some people that still stick to the King James Bible because that's what they read growing up. That's what their church had growing up. And everything else feels too weird, too different for them. There are other contemporary issues. You'll be familiar with these if you remember controversies about how to translate things like brethren or the children of Israel or the sons of Israel. It wasn't gender inclusive. And so different translations now make it more gender inclusive, but it's often a misunderstanding of those original languages that leads to those things, as well as what contemporary culture wants. Okay, so that's a contemporary issue. Another one is the gender of God. That one doesn't have to do so much with the original languages. The original languages make it pretty darn clear what gender of pronouns God has, but contemporary issues affect that. The original languages. Um, now we not only use the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, but we try to use as many old manuscripts as possible instead of the ones that just say were used by the King James Committee. Many more have been discovered since the King James was published, and you might not know this. There are so many important manuscripts that were either made public or discovered or just uncovered, like they knew that they were there but didn't know exactly what it was, since the King James Bible was published. And here are some really important ones, okay? Ready? The Dead Sea Scrolls, number one most famous archaeological find of the 20th century, probably. The most famous is called the Great Isaiah Scroll because it contained almost all of Isaiah with little tiny bits missing here and there. But to have a scroll written in the 200s or 100s BC and then discovered in 1940s and still be almost completely intact is incredible. Like, how does that even happen? Well, yeah, it happened. But you might not know that there are 981 different texts found between 1946 and 1956. And some of them were just fragments. Some of them were just little pieces because they weren't handled properly and they kind of fell apart. But 981 different texts written before the time of Jesus. So I'm going to go through some of these different archaeological finds or things that were just uncovered or rediscovered and tell you what they are, when they were found, and where they are today, okay? And this is all stuff that was found after the King James Bible was published, okay? So the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of those Dead Sea Scrolls found between 1946 and 1956. Another really big one is the Codex, and Codex just means book. It's the format of book. Codex Sinaiticus. 
It is the oldest complete copy of the New Testament that we have, period. Hands down, it was discovered in 1844. And today it's in the British Museum in London. Another one, Codex Vaticanus. So this is a little bit different because it was held at the Vatican in Rome for about 500 years or 400 years, somewhere somewhere in there, but it wasn't made public until 1889. So that means that nobody had access to it to use it as a resource for Bible translation until 1889, and it's still held in the Vatican Library in Italy. So the Codex Vaticanus, not made public until 1889, and I think it was written in, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's the 400s AD. I'll put it in the show notes if I put it, if I said it wrong. And then there's Codex Alexandrinus. It was available for a long time, but after the King James Bible was published, and it is also at the British Museum in London. And then there's these group of things. Like, it's just a lot. We can't call it by a particular manuscript name because it's a collection. There's the Cairo Geniza and the Nash Papyrus. These are the oldest known Hebrew manuscripts outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were found and kind of taken care of, collected and curated in the 1890s. So that's a huge collection of ancient manuscripts that are in Hebrew that were not found until the 1890s. And they're housed in different museums around the world. So you can't just go to one spot and see everything that was found at the Cairo Geniza. But you can look this stuff up online and see pictures of it and read about the history of all this stuff. And it's just really crazy how much we have today that we did not have in 1611 when the King James Bible was published. So when people get a little antsy or anxious about newer Bible translations that change things or have different sections, I think it's the end of Mark that is now kind of a, almost like a little appendix to Mark. And there's always notes around it saying, hey, this was not a part of some original manuscripts, blah, blah, blah. And people get very anxious about those kinds of things. It's because there's just been so much found through archaeology in the last even 100 years that gives us new information. And how do we handle that information? What do we do about that information? You have to do something with it. You can't just turn a blind eye to it and say, oh, we're just not going to accept any new information. Do we do that for anything else? If we find a new medical breakthrough, do we say, oh, no, let's just stick to what we have? No, we at least take it into consideration, at least acknowledge its existence. It's a a fact. We have this information. And we're going to talk in future episodes about the field of study called textual criticism. And I'm smiling talking about it because I know it's so foreign to so many of us that you're going to cringe and I'm cringing for you. You're like, oh no, what does that mean? Don't worry, we'll talk about it. But it's the study of these materials and what do we do with them? You have to do something with them. Can't just throw them in the trash and pretend like you didn't see it. So yeah, so we're going to keep on talking about Bible translation. Um, Lots more good stuff out there. But again, wow, I go along with these Bible translation episodes, huh? If you love it, great. If you don't, sorry. Sorry. 
<laughs> Why are you even listening then? Okay. Anyway, you have a great day and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.